You know, today's exciting. We're actually continuing a series that we began a couple weeks ago called Fake or Follower, and it's based on some of the principles from our lead pastor, Andy Andrew, her brand new book that came out that was released this past month called Fake or Follower. And uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read the book yet. Uh, Someone was generous enough to actually gift every single one of us who call Liberty home and those who are visiting as well over the last couple weeks a free book. Uh, But it is powerful, this book. And, And not just because Andy is a brilliant writer. I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever read anything that Andy has done, but she definitely is a a very gifted writer. But because the concepts themselves are incredibly challenging to our faith in all the right ways. They're empowering, they're liberating, and they're also deeply encouraging. And so throughout this month, we're, we're pulling some of the concepts from this book, and we're doing a deep dive, really having conversations, a Bible study, so to speak, as to what this really looks like and, and what it could mean for us to truly follow Jesus in the times that we're living in and actually mature in our faith. You know, the Word of God is powerful. Can I just say that? Before we jump into the message today, the Word of God is powerful. And what makes the Word of God powerful is not whoever's holding the mic. What makes the Word of God powerful is that it is God's Word to us, our Creator speaking to us. You know, Jeremiah says this, I was actually reading it this past week. It describes the Word of God, and this is God speaking to His people. He says, my Word is fire and a hammer. I like that picture. It's not just inspiration. It's not just motivation. It's fire and a hammer. And I was thinking about that and I actually believe for some of us here tonight, as we lean into what God would speak to us through the word of God, that for some of us, it's going to be like a fire, purifying, refining. For some of us right now, our our faith feels a little bit more like the afterglow of a candle that's been burnt out, you know, only seeing the remnants of what once was. But the word of God is like fire, which means in an instant when we receive the word of God and get a fresh revelation from heaven, Man, it's like a spark inside and all of a sudden revival is taking place in our hearts and it's like a hammer. A hammer deconstructs and constructs. Interesting tool. Not all construction tools do that, but the hammer can actually tear down things that need to be torn down, like walls. When our guards are up, the word of God has a way of not just sneaking in, but boldly breaking down our barriers to having an intimate, real, amazing relationship with God. And it can also build up which means it can construct what is truth and, 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 and what is life in our lives. And the reason that I say this is because I, I actually believe, and this is really not my message at all, <laughs> but just felt led to share this during worship, that sometimes we can be a bit too casual about the word of God. So you can show me like, cool, another verse, inspire me today. I got a daily devotional at home with a bunch of scriptures already there. So, you know, do your thing, right? <laughs> But the word of God is powerful. So much more than just something to momentarily inspire us. It's meant to transform us and connect us deeply to the heart of God. And so as we pray for the message tonight, here's my prayer for you. That in the ways you need fire, you get fire. In the ways you need hammer, the things that need to be deconstructed, the things that need to be torn down, get torn down in the name of Jesus. And what needs to be built in your life is built by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the very word of God, the very word of truth that God has for you tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're here in this place. And I thank you that you have something to say to us tonight. You're not silent towards us. That you love us and you want to speak to us. And so as we jump into the message and and study your word tonight, my prayer is that you truly would speak to every single one of us. That your word would be a purifying and refining fire in our hearts and in our minds. 
that your word would spark revival in our hearts where we need it, that your word would build, deconstruct what needs to be deconstructed and build, oh, build our lives, God, on the firm foundation of you, Jesus. I pray that we wouldn't just hear the word we wanna hear tonight. <laughs> it's a dangerous prayer. I pray that we would hear what we need to hear tonight that only you can bring to us. We love you, Jesus. And we call this sacred place for you to meet, regardless of where we are in our journey of faith, meet us here today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. About a year and a half ago, my husband gifted me with AirPods. Yeah, and immediately when he gave me this gift, I fell in love. Not with my husband, I was already in love with him, but with this small device. It's amazing. These two little things, you just put in your ear, and all of a sudden you can hear things, right? Now, once you get over the initial reaction and fear of like, oh my goodness, are they going to fall out of my ears when I'm walking, especially like past a grate, you know, like that would happen in New York. Once you get over that, it, it's amazing. And immediately I became inseparable to these AirPods. I, I was wearing them on the commute. I was wearing them at work. I was wearing them at the gym. It was amazing. I, I was actually consuming more podcasts and playlists than ever before in my life. But more importantly, this is, this is really the thing for me, is that I discovered the power of the AirPod, and it's this. When you put these little guys in your ears in a public setting, you immediately send the socially acceptable cue that you are uninterested in human interaction. Like, it's amazing, especially in a city like New York, where you know, we're constantly surrounded by people. This becomes like this, this digital getaway, this momentary escape from the hustle and bustle all around me. I love anybody else relate, be honest. Like this is, this is incredible, right? And, and recently though, I, I, I realized something, that it had graduated to just listening to podcasts and playlists in public settings. Now I, I had begun putting them in my ears in public places without even having to listen to anything, right? It was like automatic. It was like I was putting them in my ears for no other reason than I wanted to send the message that I am uninterested in human interaction. Like, for no other reason than because I wanted it that way, right? Now, which, which is not the worst choice in the world. There are worse things to do, for sure. But it's not the healthiest choice, especially if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, right? Your gut reaction should not be to intentionally disengage from those around you. It should be to actively love those around you, strangers or not. And so I decided it was time to take a break for my beloved AirPods. So I still use them, but I use them a lot more sparingly now. And so recently, the last, you know, about month or so, I've been walking around the city without them in my ears. And I've been at work, just typing away, listening to the conversations around me. And even in the subway, I've just been present and listening. It's incredible what's happened. My mood has changed. I'm less irritated and annoyed by strangers it's possible. And, uh, and, and I'm making eye contact with people I don't know. I'm even smiling sometimes at them, gasp, <gasps> shock and awe here in New York. Yes, it's, it's incredible. But the most important thing of all that I've discovered is, is that I, 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 I'm learning a lot more. Like listening has granted me this gift of being able to learn more about humanity. Like I'm being able to discover insights about the state of humanity that no podcast ever could. And so last week, I was sitting in a co-working space in Soho, and these two sharp and fast-talking women, they sit down next to me, and they begin to have a meeting. 
I can hear everything they're saying in the conversation. And I pick up very quickly that one of them is from DC. The other one is a high ranking decision maker at this co-working space that is one of a, a few different locations around the country that has a really big reputation for awareness and activism. And, and their conversation is all about activism opportunities. This is fascinating. They're brilliant minds. So I'm intrigued. I 100% was eavesdropping, okay? So I was like pretending to be working, but secretly I was like taking notes of their conversation, you know? It felt like, it felt like when you're, you're in a setting and all of a sudden you discover you have free Wi-Fi because somebody didn't set the password. Like I felt like I was getting free consulting just by proximity. It was incredible. There's this one point of the conversation where the high ranking decision maker, she said this and it stood out to me. She said, you know, I'm really concerned about this trend happening in society, you know, performance activism. That's what she called it. This, this idea uh, of wanting to appear to be active and engaged, we're so quick to post things and, and post what we think and repost things that are well said. And we are consuming online more content and information than ever, but it's not yielding a lot of results. We're not solving any more problems than we were before. We're not lending a helping hand. Like we're not actually doing much of anything. As she's saying this, I wanted to wave my hanky at her. I was like, preach, but I didn't because... I stayed cool and incognito. I kept taking notes. The meeting ended and the rest of the day, I could not get that phrase out of my head. Performance activism, performance activism. This, this idea that our culture is more concerned about appearing to be active and engaged in society, appearing to be justice motivated. Just true if you think about it. I mean, our society is more prone to post about our political views than to actually vote. Like more prone to, to comment away about our beliefs or to join the latest trending hashtag instead of actually donate to the worthy cause that that hashtag came about because of, right? Like we're, we're, we're more willing to share our opinion on a matter than we are to actually help our brother or sister. Performance activism, I could not shake this idea. Performance activism, performance. I was walking around New York City and I kept thinking performance activism and then it hit me. The reason that this phrase was sticking with me was that, I, yes, there, there is this very real thing, performance activism, that needs to be course corrected in our society. But equally, there is this thing that is growing, this trend amongst followers of Jesus called performance faith that equally needs to be addressed. We have to ask the question, I mean, is our faith more than Instagram deep? Like, are, 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 are we pursuing truth and love and goodness and justice and holiness and integrity or just appearing to? Are we trusting Jesus more with our lives, surrendering and living in obedience or just appearing to? Are we interested in just the highlight reels of following Jesus? Are we willing to endure the sufferings for Christ as well? Like, are, we, are we growing spiritually or just appearing to? Come on, are we becoming more like Jesus here or are we just saying and posting all the right things? In other words, is our faith authentic? Is there depth to our faith? Or is it more performance driven than we would like to admit? When I was a little girl, I loved watching WWF. Yes, World Wrestling Federation that now is called World Wrestling Entertainment, which is a more truthful name. Uh, I loved it as a little girl. And I grew up in the glory days of WWF, okay? Like Hulk Hogan, 
macho man Randy Savage, okay? These were my heroes. And every day after school, my best friends and I, our next door neighbors, we'd come together and we'd watch the latest match. And then at dinner, I would like give a play-by-play, -play, like recap to my family everything that had happened in the ring. And my dad, my dad was becoming concerned by this, you know? Like his, his baby girl, who is incredibly impressionable, is becoming increasingly devoted to WWF. And so one day, and, and in the middle of dinner, he just interrupts me while I'm telling him everything that Macho Man did that day in the ring. And he says, uh, Coley, you do know it's not real, right? Like, you know it's fake. I could not believe what he was saying. I was like, it's not possible. I mean, it looks so real and it's on TV, dad, okay? They wouldn't put something that isn't real on TV. Like, you know, I mean, my dad's smart. I've always trusted him, but he just did not know WWF the way that I did, right? So the next day, I'm still desperately holding on to this authenticity, this belief in the authenticity of WWF. And so I approach my friends and I say, you know what my dad said the other night? And I share with them what my dad said. And immediately they go, yeah, because it is fake, Nicole. They're just performing. To which I immediately was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I didn't know. And my seven-year-old soul was crushed in that moment, okay? I adamantly believed something was real. And then I found out it was just a performance. And I'll never forget that feeling. Now, admittedly, there are a lot worse things that a child could discover is not real. But in that moment, I felt a bit deceived. And there was like this seed of cynicism that got planted in my heart. Because that's what performances do. Performances are great until they're not. Performances are great, you know, they generate applause, pats on the back, a growing audience, a larger following, hype, validation, approval. But if it's just a performance, in the end, it will only lead to being dissatisfied, disillusioned, and cynical. And those three words, I believe, actually are the most accurate emotional reading of our society today. Dissatisfied, disillusioned, and cynical. And if we could be really honest, for some of us in this room right now, that would be the best way to describe our faith. Personally dissatisfied, spiritually disillusioned, and those closest to us looking in on our faith are becoming more cynical about Christianity in general. So what do we do? I mean, how do we discover authenticity in a performance-driven society? Well, if we are gonna grab a hold of what is authentic in our faith, then we need to look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was, is, and will forever be completely and perfectly authentic. His love was never motivated by the applause of the crowds. And his truth was never dictated by popular vote which is why so many have been healed and saved and restored by Jesus while others have become infuriated by him. Authenticity demands a reaction while denying the impossibility of indifference being one of them. He's authentic. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, who is the epitome of authenticity, he shows us what authentic faith really is. 
Now at this point in the gospel stories, Jesus is ministering and there's quite a large crowd that it's gathered around. And they're asking Jesus questions and this one expert of the law raises his hand and he says, Jesus, he asks him the age old question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to this expert of the law with law. He actually summarizes a couple commands. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the sum of all the commandments. Like love is the greatest purpose of the human existence. And if love is truly gonna be authentic, then it means it's endless. But this guy's not interested in authenticity. He's interested in performance because he doesn't want endless love. He wants something that's manageable. So he says, ah, okay, follow-up question. Who exactly is my neighbor? And it's there that Jesus decides to respond, not just with a quick answer, but a story, one that many of us are familiar with and we're about to read together, Luke 10, starting in verse 30. This is what Jesus says. Listen, and I'll tell you. There was once a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when bandits robbed him along the way. They beat him severely, stripped him naked, and left him half dead. Soon a Jewish priest walking down the same road came upon the wounded man. Seeing him from a distance, the priest crossed to the other side of the road, walked right past him, not turning to help him one bit. Later, a religious man, a Levite, he came walking down the same road and likewise crossed to the other side to pass by the wounded man without stopping to help him. Finally, another one, a Samaritan, came upon the bleeding man and was moved with tender compassion for him. He stooped down and he gave him first aid, pouring olive oil on his wounds, disinfecting them with wine and bandaging them to stop the bleeding. Lifting him up, he placed him on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn. Then he took him from the donkey and carried him into a room for the night. The next morning, he took his own money from his wallet. He gave it to the innkeeper with these words, take care of him until I come back from my journey. And if it costs more than this, I will repay you when I return. So now tell me, which one of the three men who saw the wounded man proved to be the true neighbor? The religious scholar responded, the one who demonstrated kindness and mercy. And Jesus said, you must go and do the same as he. Now, if we're really gonna understand the full punch and pow effect of this story, then we have to understand some context in which this story was told. When Jesus tells this story, there's two things we have to know first, that there was a huge racial divide between Samaritans and Jews. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as a mixed race. To be frank, they despised the Samaritans. It'd be highly unlikely that a Samaritan man would help a Jewish man. But Jesus in the story, he chooses someone of the despised race to be the unlikely hero of the story, which would have not only been shocking to the audience, let's be real, it would have been hard to stomach. Second, we have to take a step back from this story and understand that ultimately when it comes to the story of our lives, it is Jesus who is our good Samaritan. It's Jesus who, perfect, sinless, the Son of God willingly paid the price for sin and death. He took our place so that we could be restored, so that we could be saved, so that we could be healed. With his life, his death, and his resurrection, he stooped down from heaven to touch us, to bandage our wounds, 
to heal us, to lift us up, to carry us, to pay our debts. And if you read the full scope of the gospels, he promises that he will one day return in all of his glory to reward those who diligently seek him here on this earth. So important that we understand this because if Jesus is truly to be authentic, then he has to live up to the message and the moral of the story and he does. And the moral of the story is so obvious, it's so clear. It's just as clear now as it was 2,000 years ago when it was first spoken, and it's this. Real love requires real action. Even at the sake of our comfort, our convenience, our preferences, our wallets, our egos, if we are gonna have an authentic faith, if our love is truly gonna be authentic and not just performance-driven, then we actually have to do the hard work of helping each other. It's interesting because the two men who walked right past the wounded man in the story, they shared something in common. And it, it wasn't just their faith. It was a little bit more than that. They were both Jewish men. One was a priest, one was a Levite. They actually practiced their faith in a very strict way. They valued being religiously, ceremonially clean. They valued it above all else. And as they're walking by, they see this man and they see him half dead, maybe wondering if he is dead. They had to have thought, if I go near this guy, I could risk my cleanliness. I could risk my moral purity in the moment. I could risk what I've worked so hard to keep. And obviously we know from the story that they chose their own preference over true compassion and love. Now that is not the temptation of today. Can we be real? It's not like most people are walking around going, ooh, I'm so afraid of the world today. I hope I stay religiously pure. Like that's not really what our culture is concerned about. But it doesn't mean that we don't have our own temptation. Today, the temptation would be performance, right? So let's modernize this story for a second. So let's say it's New York City. It's a millennial maybe a Gen Xer, whatever, we're all welcome, and uh, have a cool sense of style, found their tribe, have a decent paying job in the city, like they're able to pay rent, you know, and uh, they have travel inspirations, they Pinterest all about it, they pinned the boards, they're gonna plan it, they're going to Europe someday, and so, like, this is, this is the state of, the, of this person. Maybe they have their AirPods on, maybe they don't, and they are running late from work to meet up with their friends for drinks, for dinner. And on their way in the station, the subway station, they see somebody who is clearly injured, disoriented, bleeding, and potentially dangerous, by the way. Like, they don't know how this happened. Uh, they don't know the mental state or health of this person. And if they're gonna try to help this person, they might make contact with this person's blood. I mean, people have been known to get diseases. At least I'm sure that that's somehow true somewhere, right? This is what they're thinking. Now, to make it more real, we have to acknowledge the fact that this person, this millennial who's walking by or trying to figure out what to do with the situation and with this person is very different from the person that they see. They are, just, they're very different. So, for example, if this was a young African-American woman, perhaps who she sees disoriented and bleeding is a middle-aged white man. Or if this is a 
young Asian professional, he's walking by and he sees an elderly Latino man who for all he knows doesn't speak any English. There's hundreds of scenarios here, but you get my point. They're different. They're different in some way. They, they don't look the same. They don't necessarily come from the same background. And, and, and to be frank, there are some assumptions, maybe even some poor experiences. There, there, there's some racism or prejudice that's happened both ways. This is who they're coming in contact with. And they have a choice. Am I gonna do something or am I gonna walk by this man, this woman, this person? Now, if we're gonna follow the story, it means two of them walked right by the person, rushed to get, their, get the train, gotta catch it. Maybe they were thinking in their mind, you know what, it's crowded, somebody else is gonna take care of it, this is dangerous, I'm alone, I'm not qualified for this, besides I'm already running late, I don't know what they did to get in that situation and I don't wanna join the drama, like the list could be endless, but they get on the train. But as soon as they get on the train, because the temptation is performance, they pull out their phone and they begin typing away. Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, you name it, whatever, pick your poison, Twitter, their favorite. And they start sharing with everybody what they just saw and letting people know how this reaffirms their particular views and beliefs about the world and why they vote the way that they do and why they're outraged by certain things, right? And they post it and then they wait on the train and they see how many likes they have and they see how many people have commented. And if the comments are positive, it reaffirms, yeah, I've always liked that person. They're part of my tribe. If somebody happens to disagree with their thoughts or say something contrary, well, then they immediately unfollow that person because ain't nobody got time to be triggered, just like nobody had time to help that person who was on the side of the subway bleeding and for all we know now dead. Now we are beginning to understand the full pow and punch effect of this story. It makes us uncomfortable and it's supposed to. Maybe it's time that we get a little bit more comfortable with the uncomfortable in life. Maybe it's time we go beyond posting to actually seeing the people around us and choosing to respond. Maybe there's more power, not in our opinion, but in our true and tried help. <laughs> you know, Andy in her book, she talks about this concept of real love requiring real action, and she shares this story from history. In fact, she quotes another book <laughs> in telling it. I want to read a part of it right now. She says this, in her book, The Very Good Gospel, Lisa Sharon Harper speaks to the good work that Charles Finney did for the evangelical faith and the abolitionist movement. The two went hand in hand. The slave population in the United States exploded from 700,000 in 1790 to nearly 4 million by 1860. The impact on gospel proclamation? Well, Charles Finney, the leading revivalist of the 19th century, created the altar call to give people the chance to stand up and walk forward proclaiming that they were aligning themselves with the kingdom of God. But citizenship in the kingdom of God, Finley insisted, required allegiance to God's governance over and above any human governance, including the social, legal, and economic institution of slavery. Men and women confessed and repented of their personal sins as well as their compliance with structural evil. 
And when they wiped away their tears and opened their eyes, Finney thrust a pen in their hands and pointed them to sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement. This is what it meant to be an evangelical Christian in the 1800s. In other words, real love requires real action. And we look at this story and we look at the Good Samaritan and we have to recognize that this is humanly impossible to live up to. Like it just is. We cannot love that sacrificially, that selflessly, unless it is motivated by the radical and unrelenting love of Jesus in our lives. The Bible puts it this way in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And maybe that's why for some of us right now, this is such an uncomfortable conversation because it feels like an ideal that we can't live up to. Because for us right now in our lives, we just don't have much love to give. The well is a little dry at the moment. You know, we might act like everything's good, like we know that we are loved by God. But beyond the appearance, it has been a long time since we have been radically moved by the love of God in our lives. So we show up to church and we'll post about it, but we've stopped believing that God would speak to us in the service. So we'll take group photos of community group and share them, but we won't actually open up to somebody in that group about how dry our faith feels at the moment. And, and we'll repost or share a video clip from one of our, our, our top preachers that we love, but it has been a really long time since we've opened the Bible and read it for ourselves. And one of the things that I like to do, and I've done this just since I was 12, okay? I'm a product of, dis, like, not discipline, it's ritual, really, for me. I just like my routine. So I start my day the same way. And at 12, yes, I was drinking coffee. That was the thing. Uh, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. So coffee and my Bible. That's how I start my day. It could be for five minutes. It could be for 25 minutes. It could be for longer, but that's how I start my day. And it's an opportunity for me to pray, to be focused, to connect with God, to be reminded of truth before I jump into the day's events. At the beginning of the year, I felt really, really inspired to actually share that with everybody else on Instagram. And so what I would do at the end of just having my personal devotion time is I just take a photo of a verse that stood out to me and then I jot down just a little thought about it, something that stood out to me, and then I post it on my Insta story. And I, I felt led to do this for two reasons. One, I, I wanted people to have another taste of how good the word of God is. Like just a little bit more of a seed for people to fall in love with the word of God. And I also wanted people to, to see that it, it is actually possible to read God's word on a daily basis and, and that it, there's so much benefit personally for us when we do that. But I have to admit, there are a couple times this year that I found myself in the middle of my personal devotion. I'm going through my Bible reading plan for the year. I'm reading my scriptures. I'm, gonna, I'm praying for me. It's just me and Jesus, personal devotion time. And yet I'm secretly praying, Jesus, you better give me something real good today for my followers on Instagram. Like it's gotta be a good revelation. You know, the people need it, right? And I felt so convicted so clearly one time I'm thinking this secretly, of course, I'd never say it out loud, but I'm thinking this while I'm reading and I feel, I hear the Holy Spirit say to me, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you doing this for God? Are you doing this for me? Or are you doing this for the gram? Uh, are, are you doing this because you want to spend time with me? Because you want to learn from me? Because 
You want me to lead you because you, you, you want to become more like me? Because if that's not the reason, then what is the point? And I was like, ooh, okay, Jesus, thank you, God, you know? It's one of those convicting moments of life. And this is what I love about God the Father is he's loving. And even when he corrects, it's out of his love. And he does correct. And I felt very corrected, course corrected very quickly in that moment. But can I just offer that same word to some of us here tonight? <laughs> you know? Hey, is this for God or for appearances or for performance? Listen, you are always welcome here, always. Whatever your motive, show up. We love you. Seriously, there's a place for you here. In no way am I advocating to not show up or go to church or do the things that you think are gonna draw you closer to Jesus. But I am saying as your friend, that if you are just going through some of the spiritual disciplines right now in your life to check the box of good Christian, that life is too short to pretend. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to pretend or perform anymore. It is by the grace of God that we have been saved. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you desire something that is real. Like once again, more than going through the motions of faith, that you desire to know the heart of God for you that you would have this desire and this hunger and this genuine pursuit of just knowing more and more of the depths of God's love for you. Because God's word is so clear. There's promise after promise in God's word that when we seek God, we will find him. In fact, this is what Deuteronomy 4 says. But if you from there seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, this is Jesus's promise actually to every single one of us. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So friends, if, if you ask, if you genuinely want to seek the heart of God, you'll find him. You will. He's not hiding from you. This is not some demented game of hide and seek. He actually wants to reveal his nature to you, his character to you, his goodness to you, his plans to you. And if you find yourself in a dry spot in your faith, we're actually gonna take time in just a couple minutes and I wanna pray for you if that's you in this room. And I'm gonna believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like I said earlier, how the word of God is like fire, that something's gonna be ignited in you, that you're gonna get a fresh and real revelation of the love of God, the person of Jesus, that you're gonna leave here not going, I should do better as a Christian, but with this wow of how much you are loved by God that fuels you to pursue something genuine and authentic when it comes to your faith. We can love because he first loved us. There's one other thing that's just worth noting very quickly as, as we're talking about this concept of what it means to have authentic faith. And we talk about authentic love being the key to this. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the longer that I've been following Jesus, the more aware I've become of the fact that God's love is not selective, right? Like when God looks at humanity, he sees this, he sees either lost or found sons and daughters. That's it. Because of Christ's love, when it comes to equality, we are all equals at this table of life, which is 
beautiful and magnificent and it's also wildly comforting because let's be real, in this world, we are not all treated like equals at all times. In fact, Galatians says this. Galatians 3 says, it was faith that immersed you into Jesus, the anointed one, and now you are covered and clothed with his anointing. And we no longer see each other in our former state, Jew or non-Jew, rich or poor, male or female, because we're all one through our union with Jesus Christ with no distinction between us. Ah, there's the rub. (laughs) Because God sees with no distinction, we are called to love with no distinction. I mean, think about this. The reason that the Good Samaritan was ultimately the hero of the story was because when he saw the Jewish man who was wounded on the side of the road, he didn't just see a Jewish man who's getting what he deserves for mistreating Samaritans or thinking poorly of us. He saw the very image of God. He saw the glory of God reflected on the earth. Let's look around for a minute. No, really. Look around, look around this room right now. We are all very different. (laughs) We look different. We get to know each other and talk long enough. Those three minute connects, we think different. (laughs) We pick up on different social cues. We have different interests, different passions, different experiences. We're raised in different families. We have different backgrounds, different families with different values. Not only do we think different, but a lot of us vote differently from each other. We're just quiet about it. There's a lot of differences in this room. And yet the call is not just to tolerate our differences. It's to love with no distinction. God doesn't call us to tolerance. He calls us to love. If we're truly to see each other as the image of God, a reflection of God's glory on this earth, Let me tell you something about God's glory. I don't tolerate God's glory in my life. The glory of God, we fall in this place. The glory of God falls in this place. I'm not like, oh, I guess. I guess you can be here, glory. Like, no. The glory of God is not something to be tolerated. Something to be in awe and wonder about. Something to celebrate. What if we could see within each other the glory of God? And not just tolerate, but love with no distinction. Let's be real very quickly. What would that mean for us? What would that actually look like in our lives? Ooh, easier said than done. Yes, of course. But fueled by the love of God, absolutely possible. It's the great call of the church to love with no distinction, one that we're still walking out, that we've been walking out since the very beginning of the church. But let's do our part well. It means we have to do more listening to each other than speaking over each other. More asking questions than starting by spouting our opinions. It means repenting and reconciling, letting conflict not draw us farther apart, but closer together. It looks like owning our stuff and moving forward together. It looks like showing up for each other, not just saving a seat for each other. It looks like opening our homes and our hearts. Love with no distinction. Our world is in need of this kind of love. In fact, it's this kind of love that heals. No post will ever heal what is broken in this world. No event, no rally, no march, and I'm not anti any of those things. But if it's not fueled by love with no distinction, then what is the point? Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 13. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What is authentic faith in a performance-driven world? It's love with no distinction. It's love fueled by the active love of God in our lives. And it's a love that's willing to be inconvenienced to do the work of helping each other. I'm gonna invite the, the band to come up. And we're gonna worship together in just a moment. But before we do, I wanna share with you just one interaction I had recently that helped frame this message for me and, and really wake me up in some ways. It was a couple months ago and I had just finished working out at the gym and I was running late, I was in a hurry, I needed to get home, get ready, get to the office. I had a number of things that I needed to accomplish for the day and I was thinking about those things and it was one of those things where there was this really busy intersection that I have to walk past and the crosswalk, it was like the flashing red hand. So I'm like, for us in New York, that doesn't mean maybe I should stop. It means I'm just gonna take my time, but I'm gonna cross. So a whole group of us were making this mass exodus across the intersection. And I have my AirPods in, it was before we had taken a break. And so the AirPods were in and, uh, and I was really distracted. So I took a few steps past the sidewalk and all of a sudden it hit me. Something was weird about what just happened. You know, when you're moving so fast, it takes you a minute to realize what you just saw. And I realized that there was a man who was in a wheelchair, an elderly man, but he wasn't moving. Everybody else was, but he wasn't. So I turned around to try to make sense of what I thought I saw. And then I see that this man had gotten stuck in the middle of the crosswalk. The light has changed now. And so there's cars that are swerving quickly around him. He's close to the sidewalk, but he's not quite there. And he's stuck. And so I immediately run to him I say, hey, can I help you? And he's like, yes, I'm stuck, you know. So I push him out of the way, I, you know, I help him onto the sidewalk. I introduce myself, he introduces himself. His name is Alfredo, but his friends call him OG. So I got to call him OG that day. And, um, and we started to talk a little bit. And I realized that the reason that he couldn't move the wheelchair is because he was in a lot of pain. He'd actually just got released from the hospital and he'd broken a couple ribs. And he was trying to get to the local store to get some ibuprofen to help with the pain. And then he was gonna go to do the rest of his day and he had a corner that he would ask for money at. He was homeless. And so I said, well, I'm headed in the same direction. Can I walk with you? And he said, yeah. So I pushed him for a few blocks. We probably chatted for about 10 minutes, helped him get some ibuprofen and get a meal and different things like that. And went on my way with the rest of my day. But I kept looking back at that moment when I saw him in the middle of the crosswalk. And the part that I left out that's worth mentioning is that there was actually a young woman who was closer to OG than I was. Literally, she was the distance between me and Mike. But this is what she was doing, looking right at this man and yet not seeing him at all. She was like this on her phone didn't even see the car swerving around this man. No judgment, no judgment by the way, because what I realized when I reflected on what I saw was that so often I am that girl. I'm the one who's so consumed with making sure people know what I think and being in the know that I've stopped seeing the people in need right in front of me. May I encourage us as we take a moment to pray and worship together that we be willing to see 
to look up and see the goodness of God in our lives, to look up, to receive a fresh revelation of how truly loved and valued we are chosen by God. And that we would look around and see people, whether they think like us or act like us, whether it's convenient or not, and we choose to do something. This is authentic faith in a performance-driven society. And it's this kind of faith that God has not only called us to, but it's the kind of faith that transforms a hurting world.